This is History West Midlands. Aston Hall is a magnificent example of Jacobean architecture set in impressive parklands on the edge of central Birmingham. Built for Sir Thomas Holt between 1618 and 1635, it was later occupied by James Watt Jr., son of the steam power pioneer. As the town's population grew massively in the early 19th century, however, there was a real danger that both the house and surrounding lands would be lost to development. But the working people of Birmingham were not prepared to give up their treasured asset. This is the story of how the People's Park Company saved Aston Hall and its grounds, told by historian and author Carl Chin. Sir Thomas Holt was a wealthy and powerful man. Well-read, versed in several languages and knowledgeable in the law from his time at the Inns of Court, he was one of the biggest and most prominent landowners in the Birmingham region and he also had a home in London. Yet... For all his intelligence and prosperity, his name was blackened by his reputation for having a vile temper which led him to violence. In particular, it is said that his hand was blooded by the murder of one of his servants. According to old stories, the only person who received a tender word from Sir Thomas was his cook, John, for he had found the only way to reach his master's heart was via his esophagus and ably plied his art. Then... One day, Thomas Holt, as he then was, went out hunting deer when one of his companions, Richard Smallbrook, wagered his swiftest horse that if they rode back unexpectedly to Holt's home, they would find his cook unprepared. Sir Thomas accepted the bet with alacrity, declaring, I'd sooner doubt the sun to keep his accustomed time than doubt my good cook, John. Unhappily, when the hunting party arrived at Duddiston Hall, where the Holts then lived, the table was unspread. Enraged because he had lost the wager and had been shown up, Thomas Holt seized a cleaver keen and cold and cleft the skull of his cook in twain. The story may well be based on truth, for in 1606 Holt sued for slander a William Asquick of Birmingham, who had recounted the tale. Awarded just £30 damages, Holt lost even this when the verdict was overturned on appeal. Still, the rumours of murder did not stop him from rising socially. Vain and ambitious, Holt had been sheriff of Warwickshire in 1599, but he was intent on reinforcing his social standing by becoming a knight. Such an accolade would signal to all that not only was he wealthy, but also that he was a gentleman of status. His opportunity came in April 1603, when he was in the delegation that welcomed to England King James VI of Scotland, the successor of Queen Elizabeth I, who was to become King James I of England. A few days later, Thomas Holt was knighted, but still his self-importance was not satisfied. A chance for him to further improve his situation arose in 1611, when James I created the new title of Baronet. This was a hereditary title, above that of a knight, and it was exclusive, as there are only 200 of them awarded. It was thus offered to... Every gentleman possessed of an annual income of a £1,000, whose ancestors, for two generations at least, had borne arms, 
the principal condition being, however, that he should maintain for the defence of Ireland, and especially for the security of the province of Ulster, 30 foot soldiers in the King's army after the rate of 8 pence sterling per day for three years. Keen to flaunt his new status and power locally, Sir Thomas left his ancestral home at Doddiston Hall, close to the banks of the River A, and instead had a grand new house built on a hill overlooking Aston Church. This prominent position would allow him to look across his wide lands, which included Doddiston and Neutrals as well as Aston, and to proclaim to the world his success and significance. It is thought that Sir Thomas paid John Thorpe, a well-respected land surveyor, to design the house and then engaged masons, carpenters and other craftsmen to build it. The foundations were made of big bands of iron slag, most of which probably came from the Aston Furnace, which was to give its name to Furnace Lane in Lozells. Similarly, the bricks for the shell of the hall were made from local clay and were dressed with soft grey sandstone. The rest of the house was made of timber, and for this purpose, several hundred oak trees were cut down on the Holt Estates. Work on Aston Hall began in 1618, and Sir Thomas was able to move there in May 1631, although construction was not completed for at least another four years. It was a spectacular building, and amongst its rooms on the ground floor were a great hall, now the entrance hall, a great parlour in which Sir Thomas dined, and kitchens. A superb cantilevered oak staircase ran round a square well up to the floors above. On the first was the great dining room, the best lodging chamber, where King Charles I slept on October the 18th, 1642, the withdrawing room and the long gallery. Originally, this was about 125 feet long and it was used for a variety of purposes. Rich folk could listen to music there or look at the paintings that were on the walls. Robert K. Dent, a late 19th century historian of Birmingham, explained that the hall was approached from the Litchfield Road through a noble avenue of elms and Spanish chestnuts. Like most buildings of its class, which were erected at that period, it consists of a centre and two wings. At each side, a little in advance of the main building, but connected therewith by a wall, are small buildings of two storeys intended as lodges for the falconer or gamekeeper and gardener. The two wings, which may be said to form the top and bottom of the letter E, each contain two large embayed windows to the front and are surmounted by lofty towers with closed OG roofs of a dome-like character. In the centre of the main building is a similar but more massive tower, surmounted by a double OG roof. On either side of the tower, are two curved gables, those nearest the tower rising above the cornice and balustrade which surmounts the projecting portion of the front. The other two surmount the more embayed portions on either side. The doorway consists of a semicircular arch with two fluted columns on square bases supporting an embouchure. During the Civil War, when England was rent in two, Sir Thomas was a lukewarm royalist although in 1642 he did entertain King Charles I, who was leading his army from Shrewsbury to relieve Banbury Castle. Despite this visit, Sir Thomas tried to steer a middle course between the Royalists and the Parliamentarians, who were strong in Birmingham and Coventry. However, in December 1643, following the sack of Birmingham by the Royalists, led by Prince Rupert, Sir Thomas deemed it necessary to ask for protection from the Royalist fortress of Dudley. 
In response, 40 musketeers were sent to Aston Hall. This action provoked a parliamentarian attack and following three days' defence, Aston Hall was surrendered by Sir Thomas, although the marks of cannon shot can still be seen on the walls and balusters of the Great Staircase. The hall itself was plundered, Sir Thomas was imprisoned, his household goods were confiscated and the parliamentarians fined him large sums of money. He died in 1654, by which time he was also the Lord of Erdington and Pipe, and thereafter his family's power and wealth waned. The end of their control of Aston Hall and estate was signalled by the will of Sir Lister Holt. This will was indeed a strange thing. Sir Lister left his real estate to his own sons, if he had any, and if not to his brother Charles and his male heirs. However, if Charles had no sons, then the Holt lands were to go to Hennage Leg, a nephew of Sir Lister's first wife. And if Hennage Leg had no successors, then everything would be passed on to another of his relatives, Lewis Baggett, Bishop of St Asaph, and a younger son of Sir Walter Baggett and Lady Barbara Leg. If Baggett's line failed, the properties were to be given to Rottersley Digby of Meriden and his heirs. Finally, if he had no issue, then the Holt estates would revert to Mary, the daughter of Charles Holt. William Hutton, Birmingham's first historian, expostulated that this was one of the most unaccountable assignments that ever resulted from human weakness. Sir Lister Holt died in 1770 and his brother Charles suddenly became a wealthy landowner. He died 12 years later and Hennage Leg inherited the Holt lands. With Birmingham marching outwards and seeking space for the building of houses and workshops, the Duddiston area especially rose in value and was developed. Legg was a sound custodian of the Holt estates, but it became apparent that neither he or Baggett or Digby would have a male heir. By now, Mary Holt was married to Abraham Bracebridge of Atherston. He was spectacularly irresponsible and unsuccessful in his business affairs. In anticipation of his wife inheriting the Holt property, Bracebridge used them to raise mortgages. By 1798, he owed the massive sum of £55,000 and oblivious to his shortcomings, he continued to make disastrous financial decisions. Because of his business failures, Bracebridge was unable to discharge his loans, and in 1818, he finally secured the support of Legge to obtain an Act of Parliament allowing the partition of the Holt lands. This led to the sale of Aston Hall and Park and other properties to meet the demands of Bracebridge's creditors. Legge then gained most of the manors of Duddiston and Neutrals, whilst his nephew Digby took the manor of Erdington and lands in Borsley and Sutton Coalfield. Even after the sale of so much land, Bracebridge was unable to clear his huge debts. His poor wife died the year after the profligacy of her inept husband had destroyed her ancestral estates. As for Aston Hall and the estate around it, in 1818 it was bought by a firm of Warwick bankers who leased it to James Watt the Younger, the son of the celebrated engineer. It was during Watt's time as tenant that Aston Hall inspired Washington Irving, the father of American literature, who had a deep bond with Birmingham. Born in New York City, Irving came to England after the Napoleonic Wars and set up in business in Liverpool. Unfortunately, the venture failed and downhearted as to his future, he decided to visit his sister Sarah and her husband, Henry Van Wart. Descended from Dutch settlers who had helped to found New Amsterdam, later New York, Van Wart was a major business figure in Birmingham and it was at their house in Hockley that Washington Irving recovered his spirits and set his life upon a successful path when he wrote Rip Van Winkle, 
This story formed part of the sketchbook, as did the tales of Sleepy Hollow, also written in Hockley. Then there was a book called Old Christmas. This story was crucial in the pushing forward to Americans of the idea of an old English Christmas, and it focused upon Bracebridge Hall, for which Aston Hall and its grounds were probably the inspiration. James Watt the Younger lived at Aston Hall until 1848, after which the greater part of the estate was sold off, along with the herd of deer which had roamed across it. New streets were soon cut out and housing built alongside them. There was now real concern about the survival of the hall and the remnants of its park, all the more so as many Brummies were living in badly built and insanitary back-to-back houses with neither gardens nor open spaces to enjoy. The lack of a public park locally was recognised by some well-meaning wealthy men, but the major obstacle they faced was the high value of land in and around the rapidly grown Birmingham. This was made clear in August 1850 when the mayor was approached by Messrs Greenway, Greaves and Whitehead, the bankers of Warwick who had bought the Aston Hall and Park estates from their last inheritor of the Holt family. The mayor suggested to the council that it should enter discussions to buy the historic building and the park around it, but it was revealed that for 300 plus acres, a price of between £100,000 and £200,000 was sought. Whatever the exact amount, it was a vast sum and beyond the resources of the borough itself, which was beset by a considerable debt because of the building of the prison at Winston Green and of other facilities. Six years later, a campaign began to save Aston Hall from the threat of destruction. A fête champêtre, a fancy name for a grand event in a splendid setting, was held there on Monday, July the 27th, 1856. It was a huge garden party to raise funds for the Queen's Hospital in Bath Row. Queen Victoria herself and her husband, Prince Albert, were amongst the list of royal and aristocratic patrons, although they did not attend. Advertisements for the fate declared that it would be held in the beautiful park and grounds of the ancient baronial mansion. According to Eliezer Edwards, the driving force behind the event was the glass manufacturer and soda water producer John Walsh Walsh. He was also a councillor and had already been urging the council to buy Aston Hall and Park and for this grand occasion he was determined to show both off with such a fate as Birmingham had never witnessed and would not readily forget. Nor did it. Huge numbers of tickets were sold for the big day. Monday, July the 28th, was delightfully fine and was taken as a general holiday locally. Aston Village was gaily decorated. The Royal Standard floated from its parish church, whilst its bells chimed out in joyous melody. The Elizabethan gateway to the park was hung with bunting and... The sober old hall had a sudden eruption of colour, such as it had probably never known before. Flags of all colours were everywhere, and as noon approached, train after train, deposited at the Aston station hundreds and thousands of gaily attired black country people. To their number were added the hosts that came from Birmingham on special trains, or who were crammed into omnibuses, wagons, cabs, carts, and every other imaginable vehicle, whilst thousands upon thousands of dusty pedestrians jostled each other in the crowded roads. Aston Hall was thrown open and outside there were platforms for dancing, pavilions for musicians, swings, merry-go-rounds, punch and judy shows, games and other amusements. In the evening, the Sycamore Avenue was lighted up by innumerable coloured lamps to conjure a fairy-like scene, and... Then came the fireworks. No such display had ever before been seen in the Midland counties. The lights of rockets, the marvellously ingenious set-pieces, 
and the wonderful blue lights gave intense delight. The finale was as spectacular. The words, Save Aston Hall, came out in glowing fire to the acclaim of the vast crowd. The Fête Champêtre prompted more moves to save Aston Hall and Park, and the owners expressed an anxiety that the park should be possessed by the council, as this was the only means by which it could be maintained in its present state of entirety. The council, though, balked at the price demanded. £24,500 for Aston Hall and 30 acres of parkland, and £36,400 for an additional 52 acres selected as the most eligible. However, matters were soon to be taken out of the hands of the local authority by the people of Birmingham. The redoubtable and visionary preacher George Dawson had launched a Save Aston Hall campaign in the Daily Press, the first daily newspaper in the town. His appeal roused a group of gentlemen to action. On June 30th, 1857, they held a meeting chaired by Charles Holt Bracebridge, the son of Mary Holt and Abraham Bracebridge. However, he was the antithesis of his spendthrift father. A clever and caring man, he was involved in prison reform and he and his wife played a vital role in helping Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War. Charles Holt Bracebridge was a crucial figure in saving the home of his ancestors and in providing part of its grounds as a park for the people. The meeting agreed that it was desirable to purchase 43 acres of land in Aston Park, including timber and the hall, for the sum of £35,000. A company was formed to sell shares so that Aston Hall may ultimately become free to all. Crucially, the promoters of the company proclaimed that they were actuated by a desire to preserve from destruction the venerable edifice of Aston Hall with its historic associations and at the same time to afford to the town the advantages of a park and place of recreation and amusement. Unhappily, there was no progress, but an appeal had also been made to the working class of Birmingham. This led to workers from the town's leading manufacturers meeting on June 26, 1857. George Dawson was called to the chair and John Edward Langford, a self-taught working-class man and chronicler of Birmingham's history, reported proudly that The meeting was unanimous and enthusiastic. The object was approved. A committee was appointed with Dawson as chairman, Langford as vice-chairman and Daniel J. O'Neill as honorary secretary. A Dubliner who had settled in Birmingham, O'Neill was a skilled metal worker and was hailed in his obituary in the Birmingham Gazette on July 21st, 1914 as the friend of the poor and... As one of the most interesting personalities in the public and social life of Birmingham for upwards of half a century. In his publication, How Aston Hall and Park Were Saved in 1910, O'Neill stated that he became involved in the campaign to endeavour to get Birmingham a park worthy of the name to save a grand historic building from being carted away as so many thousands of old bricks, and to prevent the magnificent trees being felled for jerry-building and road. The grand building was Aston Hall. The campaigners faced difficulties, but in September 1857, the Working Men's Committee agreed to pay £35,000 for Aston Hall and 43 acres of the park. Two years were allowed for completing the purchase, with quarterly instalments to be paid. Faced with these massive sums, the Committee of Working Men amalgamated with the wealthy citizens who had started their company to save Aston Hall. Langford was appointed secretary of this new joint committee, which included Dawson, Bracebridge and 14 other gentlemen. Their number was matched by working men. 
A new company was registered with the simple object of purchasing Aston Hall and Park as a place of recreation and amusement. The contract was then signed with the proprietors and a deposit of £3,500 was paid on February 12, 1858. Four days later, the new Aston Hall and Park Company Limited took possession of the property. The aim was to raise £42,000 through the sale of 40,000 guinea shares, payable by half-crown instalments. The expectation was that the shares would be redeemed out of the profits of refreshments and entertainments and that this would then allow the transfer of Aston Hall and Park to the Corporation of Birmingham. O'Neill reported on behalf of the interim managers of the Aston Hall and Park Company at its first shareholders meeting at the Town Hall on March 30, 1858. It was well attended, with between 400 and 500 people present, most of whom were working men, and several of them announced to cheers that Aston Park was to become a free park, a people's park. O'Neill indicated that from the first, the Working Men's Committee had a strong feeling upon the necessity of making an extraordinary display at the opening of the park. As soon as the success of the movement was placed beyond a doubt, the working men thought if a proper representation was made to Her Most Gracious Majesty of the purposes for which the park and hall were adapted, and the means by which they were obtained, Her Majesty might be pleased to accept an invitation to inaugurate the People's Park. O'Neill was certain that this honour was the crowning success of their undertaking. The Mayor, John Ratcliffe, had undertaken the initial steps, and to the surprise of many, Queen Victoria had actually accepted the invitation. Robert K. Dent believed that she did so because she was persuaded that the Aston Hall and Park Company was in effect an association originated by the working classes for the purpose of acquiring a park, the ultimate destination of which is that it shall be free for the inhabitants of the borough. Langford and others on the committee were keen that Aston Hall should become the great patent card of all our artistic and manufacturing skill, a perpetual exhibition of the works of our manufacturers and artists. To that end, for the Queen's visit, there was to be an exhibition of fine arts in the building itself. Sir Francis Scott of Great Bar Hall then made an appeal. Published in the Birmingham Gazette on April the 19th, it praised the working men of Birmingham for their united action and energetic canvassing and unsparing sacrifice of time and exertion of many men of influence among their body. Aided by the contributions of local gentlemen, they had purchased Aston Hall and thereby rescued from destruction one of the most picturesque and unaltered of our Jacobean buildings and with it secured the possession of the terrace, gardens and about 40 acres of the beautifully situated and well-timbered park. The great day itself was Tuesday, June the 15th, 1858. It was the first time a reigning monarch had visited Birmingham officially. Given the egalitarian nature of the town citizens and their long-standing and steadfast support for democratic campaigns, some of the upper class locally and nationally were worried at the reception that the Queen and Prince Albert would receive. But even the Times had to concede that dark insinuations of danger were an atrocious libel on the people of Birmingham. They acclaimed the Queen enthusiastically, a theme picked up by a reporter for The Globe. He declared that half a million people gathered from the great city and the adjacent districts. The last time a sovereign had come close to Birmingham was in the English Civil War, when Charles I had stayed at Aston Hall. He left to fight the Battle of Edge Hill and... Birmingham sallied forth and laid siege to the Royalist stronghold. By contrast, multitudes now lined the street, whilst... The house fronts and housetops were alive with warm, hearty subjects. 
Queen Victoria arrived by rail just after 12 noon, and after a reception at the town hall, she knighted the mayor. Sir John Ratcliffe, as he now was, then escorted her to Aston Hall. For the Liverpool Daily Post, the most important feature of the visit was the preservation of Aston Hall and its noble grounds as a public park and museum for the people. If Liverpool could proudly boast of a great public benefactor in William Brown, then Birmingham too can turn with pride to the munificence of a private individual whose chief characteristic is to be the fit representative of a numerous class, a working man grown rich by industry. This theme was brought to the fore at Aston Hall in the address to the Queen by Sir Francis Scott. He stressed that... In some towns in Your Majesty's dominions, public parks have wisely been provided by wealthy corporations, in others by the munificence of philanthropic citizens. Here also we are indebted to private liberality for two places of recreation for the people, but to Birmingham alone has it been given to secure by her own exertions an ancient park for the physical relaxation, an ancient hall for the mental cultivation of her variously employed and laborious population. Your Majesty will, we believe, be gratified to learn that Aston Hall and Park have been acquired for the most part by the industry and economy of the people themselves. Of the money required for this purpose, a very large proportion has been subscribed by the working classes, a circumstance which we venture to hope will not be without interest and satisfaction to Your Majesty. Four of the interim managers of Aston Hall and Park were presented to the Queen, as were some working men on the committee. She stated that she saw... With pleasure, the labour you have undertaken in providing thus worthily for the physical and intellectual improvement of the working classes, and I sincerely hope that this hall and park will prove a boon and a comfort to the people of Birmingham. Regrettably, following the royal visit, both the public take-up of shares and donations dropped off, while some existing shareholders failed to keep up their payments. Moreover, mismanagement led to lower profits from the big events that were organised, while several thousand pounds had been spent on repairs and decorations to Aston Hall. As Langford stressed, With a few honourable exceptions... Wealthy citizens were conspicuously absent in their support. Then, in 1863, there came a crisis. The Forester's fate on July the 20th featured the female blondin, Mrs Powell. Tragically, as she was performing on the high rope, it broke and the poor woman was killed on the spot. This terrible accident prompted the Queen to have a letter written on July the 25th and she sent it to the Mayor, Charles Sturge. She wanted to make known her personal feelings of horror that one of her subjects, a female, should have been sacrificed to the gratification of the demoralising taste unfortunately prevalent for exhibitions attended with the greatest danger to the performers. Such exhibitions were deemed demoralising and the Queen trusted that the Mayor, in common with the rest of the townspeople of Birmingham, will use your influence to prevent in future the degradation to such exhibitions of the park which was gladly opened by Her Majesty and the beloved Prince Consort, in the hope that it would be made serviceable for the healthy exercise and rational recreation of the people. The Mayor was chastened and wrote to the Queen that although Aston Park was beyond Birmingham's jurisdiction, he hoped that... Their influence and that of their fellow townsmen will henceforth limit its use exclusively to the healthy exercise and rational recreation of the people 
so that the gracious intentions of Her Majesty and her revered consort may not be frustrated, but realised. It was now obvious that Aston Hall and Park could not be bought by the company set up to save it, in spite of the best efforts of all concerned. Only £9,000 of the purchase money of £35,000 had been paid, and it was feared that if the company collapsed, as was a possibility, then Aston Hall and Park would be lost to the people forever. The managers realised this, and so on August the 4th, they sent a resolution to the same council meeting at which the Queen's letter was read out. It stated that they were desirous that steps should be taken to arrange with the corporation for the completion of the purchase. The council dithered and prevaricated. Worse than that, according to the Birmingham Daily Post, the application from the managers was received coldly. It was then referred to the Baths and Parks Committee, a grand title for a body that oversaw only two parks, both of which had been donated to the town by benefactors. In the end, the council motion in favour of acceding to the proposal of the company was rejected by 40 votes to 11. This was followed on October the 8th by the Mayor appealing to the Justices and Gentlemen of Warwickshire, as Aston was not then in Birmingham. Their response was negative, after which Queen Victoria was alerted to the ominous situation of the hall and park she'd opened. She instructed another letter to be sent to the Mayor. It was strongly worded, and in effect, it chastised the Council for its lack of action. The Queen regretted. Very much to hear that there exists a possibility of the people of Birmingham losing the enjoyment of Aston Park as a place of healthy exercise and recreation. In such a hive of industry, an open area for relaxation and amusement after toil must be most valuable. Her Majesty had hoped that this requirement had been permanently provided for, and Her Majesty is still unwilling to believe that, in a locality in which so much wealth is found in proximity to the hard labour by which it is produced, funds can be wanting to secure to the population an enjoyment they value. The intervention of the Queen and the bad publicity that resulted from it stirred a group of philanthropic men to action. They raised a total of £7,000. This was added to the sum already paid by the Aston Hall and Park Company and the total was offered to the Town Council if it would complete the purchase. Langford wrote that after several long and weary discussions, at last, on February the 2nd, 1864, the council finally voted £20,000 for that purpose. The Aston Hall and Park Company was then wound up and the purchase was completed by the council on September the 12th, 1864. Ten days later, Aston Park was finally opened as a free park for the people by the Mayor W. Holiday, who gave a banquet in the Great Gallery of Aston Hall in celebration. The next day, the Birmingham Daily Post reported that the Aston Hall and Park movement had been brought to a successful conclusion. For the previous seven years, it had been one of the most prominent items of local agitations. But its rate of progression has become more and more feeble with each succeeding year. After the great fates of 1856, the whole community seemed animated with the sentiment, Save Aston Hall. A perfect whirlwind of enthusiasm then arose in favour of securing the old mansion and its appurtenances for public use. Importantly, the newspaper maintained that the pioneers of the cause were a body of working men. Their vital efforts, however, were soon to be forgotten. Langford himself wrote with some sorrow that Although the names of the donors of the £7,000 are very properly exhibited on a tablet in the entrance hall, 
no allusion is made to the working men who gave up their shares, or to the company who had paid £14,000 towards the purchase of the hall and park, and who expended a large sum in beautifying the park, and collected, at considerable cost, aided by donations, the exhibition which is now one of the chief attractions of the place. The shareholders generously gave all this to the town and up to this time have received no word of recognition or of thanks for their act. Let us hope that impartial history will reverse this injustice and render honour to whom honour is due. The time to do so is well overdue. For without the working class of Birmingham, Aston Hall, one of the finest Jacobean mansions in England, would have been lost and Aston Park would have disappeared, covered with buildings. You can read about the history of Aston Hall and its park, download more programmes by Carl Chin and sign up for our newsletter at the website www.historywm.com. <laughs>